Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. Today, we're going to talk more about virtual learning, and it's a field that's really changed, and it's a field that's being leaned on heavily right now when we're recording this during the coronavirus times where everybody's working virtually. It's illegal to meet in person as a team. And today, we also have Colin Cohen, who is PMG Learning's Chief Revenue Officer, has been doing virtual learning for many years. And we also have Mark Williams, who is also a WMFDP consultant and been doing 20 years of virtual learning work with Win Insights and his own firm. So welcome, both of you. Is there anything else you want to share about your background? Maybe share how long you've been experimenting in this virtual learning field in your work. Colin, you want to share? Sure. Thank you for taking the time. My name, once again, is Colin Conner, the Chief Revenue Officer for PMG Learning, and we're a custom learning company responsible for everything from analysis to design and development of a variety of different types of custom learning solutions. So everything from instructor-led training to web-based training to virtual learning. And right now, in this new world order, a lot of the work that we're focused on is taking traditional lecture-based learning and converting it to a variety of formats to make it work effectively in a virtual environment. I've been working with commercial and federal clients in the space for about 15 years. And it's sort of an interesting time because the technology has changed enough to enable a lot of the work that traditionally could only be accomplished in person to function really well with the right design in a virtual environment. So so I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for joining us. Mark, you want to share? Sure. I've been at this for 25 years, maybe a little more. Worked to build a curriculum out that was called the Diversity Channel early on. And my identity, which Colin was involved with and his team, trying to find ways to use technology, distance learning, to bridge the gap between what can be done live and experientially. And in person with DNI, bridge the gap between what is live and what is uh, on the web. Mm-hmm. I've been at that for 25 years or so. Just recently met your organization and I'm thrilled to be working with you on that challenge. Thanks, Mark. So you all have partnered for a while in co-creating some of this sort of stuff. In that, and it's been in the diversity field since that's one of your backgrounds, Mark, is a diversity facilitator and stuff. So what did you create together? We created a really wonderful environment called My Identity, which today, Michael, you might see parts of that as the identity cards. Some of the original baseline work was done by Colin's company. 
So interesting working with Mark. The way I put it is Mark is a mastermind of creativity. Unbelievable amount of great concepts and ideas around diversity and inclusion and actually making diversity and inclusion effective for ROI for businesses, which, which I always thought was the right way to look at it. And so we worked by creating a bunch of e-learning modules that built different characterizations of individuals and how they would communicate better by understanding the backgrounds of other individuals in a real work environment. So we were really thrilled to be part of it. And the relationship has extended for a long period of time. We also helped Mark with some training on competencies, gender and race, which was uh, from content that Mark had designed and developed. And now we're working with him to help facilitate virtually some of the content that he's already created. I would say when we worked before, we were way out ahead. Hmm. What we built. I would say so. I would say so. Way out ahead in the curve. Yeah. And now we're actually, as WMFDP, we're using, sounds like part of what you created in what we call Inclusion Insights, which is a follow-up program to our labs, in-person labs, in-person summits, where people continue over another month or two or three, weaving back into the concepts, doing uh, assignments and things like that, which Mm -hmm. is uh, cool on our end to watch that synergize, because one of the things that has always been missing from powerful in-person sessions is more consistent Mm follow-up. So actually the whole virtual learning process has been a really additive process for us and our clients are just, just starting to look at and incorporate that as pilots right now. What are you most excited about either of you about what's possible today virtually that wasn't really possible before? What's, what's this edge we stand on right now today? In the last two weeks, I've been asked, Where are we with virtual training, with holographic simulation, so that the image of the trainer can be in the room and move? How far away are we from that for real? From my perspective, it's it's a great question. We're not far at all. But I think the challenge is this. When you're building training, there's always three legs to the stool, right? There's what's your time, what's the most effective solution, and what's the cost? So there are tools that are, that are becoming more available for virtual reality, and some of them are, are really necessary for certain types of training. But a lot of times, they're not worth the cost because they don't make enough difference in what the overall effectiveness of the learning solution is. I love the idea. We have not personally done a lot of it for that reason. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But it is possible. It is possible. Where will it be in three years? I don't know where it'd be in three years, but I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that on a regular basis, that you had uh, uh, virtual instructors and students and people raising their hand and answering questions and whiteboarding. And a lot of that's available right now. I mean, it's even available on Zoom or WebEx or any other readily available tools that I can take over, share what's on my screen. I can create whiteboards. We can do it virtually. We can also do it together. You can have a classroom where you have 15 students and they're all writing on the blackboard at the same time or the whiteboard at the same time. So a lot of it is available already. Adding the uh, the virtual environment where you're you're actually a hologram, I don't think we're that far off. One of the things that I think is sort of a tipping point in the diversity field is, at least in the way we do it, is how do you have these conversations where you can actually virtually have space for not just the head and ideas, but for the heart? 
and the sharing of the heart. And I feel like the more virtual it is, I can imagine when we actually are all wearing goggles and we're actually feeling like we're sitting in a circle looking around each other and talking that that's going to feel really real. And right now in the world, it looks like we're staring at each other's video cameras on Zoom, many of us being able to sort of have conversations depending on how we structure the questions with each other that give space for the head and the heart. I was just on a team meeting this morning where we actually, the leader paused us all, about 12 of us, and just said, make eye contact with each other, just like you would if you were looking around in a room because we had we just had some layoffs and stuff in the middle of the coronavirus stuff. And it was like, we were just really like processing what needed to be processed emotionally and stuff. And I was amazed at how we could work with what we had to work with, which is the Zoom video technology and people slowing down. So I think you're right. Kind of a lot of it's the speed, the facilitator skill and getting comfortable with this technology as well. But it's how do you create space for the heart in this type of environment? I love Zoom. I, I love a lot of the virtual tools. The truth is that my company has been working virtually for about 15 years. And from my perspective, we're more productive and we're still a very relationship driven and culturally driven company. It enables us to meet on a regular basis in a real personal manner. And we're used to working this way. So I, I still think meeting in person every once in a while makes sense and is, is good. But I don't think that working virtually or even meeting in these virtual environments prohibits solutions from being delivered and from successful operating businesses. What I was going to suggest is in a virtual environment, one of the things that I think is effective for learning is to provide real challenges and then to break students into groups to solve those real challenges. So they're working with real context. And then afterwards, to take the different teams and have them present the solutions to each other. And that does provide an opportunity, even in a, in a virtual world, for learning to happen in an effective manner and for people to learn from other people's experiences or solutions. I like that idea. I mean, Mark, I think in the OD world, that's like action learning. It's like taking real challenges and making people learn through trying to apply real challenges. And it sounds like you found the breakout groups a really powerful method. Depending on the type of learning, it's absolutely a very effective way. Particularly if you have a, a group, you're, you were talking about some larger groups, but if you have a, a virtual classroom of 20, 25 students and you really want them to interact and participate, you can't do it in one large group session. So breaking them into smaller teams, providing them challenges and activities, having them present those activities all helps support learner engagement. And that's, a, that's one of the biggest challenges you have in the virtual environment to begin with. So now you're solving context, um, you're solving participation, and people are learning from each other. Yeah, we're actually just doing that for a client. They want to touch as many people as possible. So because Zoom has 50 breakout rooms and we're going to go to up to four people, we're going to only allow 200 people at a time so they can be in groups of four in those breakout rooms. But you're right. It's like, how do we build the whole system around what, what is allowed from a participant group and then small groups? The other thing that we've used, and we don't use it regularly, but I kind of, I do kind of like this idea, 
is a randomization widget. So if you have a class of 25 students, it will scroll all of their names and it'll pick a name and that person is put on the spot to answer a question. And that way you're really ensuring that the people who are participating are really paying attention. Uh, the other thing that, that I would suggest is it's very difficult. If you have a five-day class, you can't put people in front of a computer for five days and expect that they're going to stay completely engaged the entire time. So breaking into smaller chunks and also, as Mark said, determining which areas can be purely self-paced and which areas really involved or require discussion. So you're really designing it in that manner. I think that that's an important design element. How do you decide which mode to use for those? Well, what we tend to do is we tend to look at all the content of the learning objectives and determine which is more memorization versus which is more decision-making. And so the areas that are more decision-making are areas where you tend to have more requirement for discussion. And the other areas can really be presented and memorized. I was going to offer that for DNI work, which really requires self-disclosure, which requires a level of trust and safety, psychological safety. And if you have the option to work with leaders who are, are more senior level, I think the idea of cohorts that you're already using is a great idea because over time, because your programs have a lot of content and they're longer, that's why they're effective. The idea of keeping people in groups of 12 or 13 or 14 who begin as complete strangers, but over the course of the year, which you could easily do, they will bond, they'll feel more comfortable with each other, they'll feel safer, and perhaps somewhere after the fourth or fifth meeting, if it's moderated, they may begin to experience some of the benefits that you do in the live session. For me, the issue is intimacy. When you have a number over 50, it's hard to develop intimacy and trust. So that means that the things that you would be doing in those sessions wouldn't require a lot of self-disclosure. But if you want intimacy, trust, and self-disclosure, the groups would have to be small and maybe remain intact over a period of time. So rather than trying to do something in three days, make it one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe half days or less, and spread that time out and give them things to do in between, I think then you're going to get to the heart piece because they will have built up enough trust with each other. I think it's doable. It's just a structure. And, and in the structure, one of the other things that we've done depends on the challenge, but a lot of times we'll use either coaching or mentoring guides. So you can learn a lot. A lot can be memorization. A lot can be um, conducting different challenges virtually and, and having teams work on solving so solutions. But then the other is to actually apply what you've learned. And you can create uh, different coaching guides and mechanisms to ensure that the behaviors change long-term. And that is purpose generally of a learning environment is not to be one and done, but it's to actually change how people behave and how the business operates for the better. And so having it integrated to actual real work and real environments is really what the long-term goal should be anyhow. Which is kind of like, how do you build accountability for applying the learning into the process? And gosh, I know I'm going to have to go online in another week with my cohort and report back. How have I applied the learning or not? 
What conversations have I had about race and gender that I never had before? And how did I step into those and what worked and what didn't? <laughs> what quote unquote failures can I actually use as learning opportunities and keep at it? Great opportunity for that cohort based peer coaching uh, accountability process. Those are great ideas. What other tips do you all have? You're full of great insights about making this work virtually. Well, as I said, there's the one that one of the biggest challenges that we've seen is that either facilitators or maybe not even professional facilitators, but managers or subject matter experts that are put in the position of facilitating, not only need help sometimes understanding how to best facilitate, but they also need to build some confidence. And so I, I do think that it makes sense not just to assign and provide materials and ask people to go and run a curriculum, but to provide them some training the trainer coaching and some practice and feedback first. It doesn't have to take a lot of time, but we just did this for a large bank of banking center managers that were used to facilitating in person. And now because of COVID, they're converting all of their seminars to a web format. You know, they need an hour. How do I use the tools? What's available? How do I make sure people are participating? When should I poll and what kind of questions should I ask? So what are some key techniques? So just providing a little bit of instruction and some confidence um, elevates their ability to be able to train in a virtual environment more successfully. So I think it's overlooked and I think it's important. I'm actually going through that myself. I watched my colleague facilitate two webinars last week. I'm going to facilitate one this Friday. I've got a bunch of my colleagues watching me, and then we're going to continue to roll this out. But yeah, given the new technology, running the Zoom platform, somebody's going to produce it. So I just focus on the facilitation. But yeah, it feels like it's all new roles, Colin. It feels like I'm like, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't want to learn the hard way and have something not work out. Right. And also... If you're a professional facilitator, but you haven't created the materials, working with the designer to determine some of the features built into the materials to make it more effective is really helpful because otherwise, facilitator, a lot is left to you to learn while you're doing. Yeah, I would, I would encourage that before any large initiatives that you're not only designing materials effectively for a virtual environment, but you're actually providing some tips and some practice for the facilitators. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but just something to give them a leg up. I can share with you, Michael, what that looks like, those kinds of guides. They just completed them for us, meaning inclusion insights, for the team development series. All of that can be done virtually. They created the guides. I can just share those with you. The other thing, Michael and Colin, that I find frustrating, uh, (laughs) having to learn multiple formats. So we use Zoom externally with ourselves. I'm going to have to learn WebEx in two weeks for the federal government. That's all they use. There are multiple platforms. So you can't think you got it down just because we've learned Zoom. And that's frustrating. That's actually a great point. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Adobe Connect has its own set of tools. You know, Web24 has one for, I mean, uh, WebEx has one set of tools for most meetings but then another set for training. Same thing with Zoom, same thing with Don24. So there's a lot of different tools out there. The basic functionality that they provide is very, very similar. But there are some key 
features that you can take advantage of in different tools. And so you really can design differently depending on which tool is going to be used. I think that's, that's a great point. And it's client-driven. We can't say, we like Zoom. <laughs> They'll say, no, we're using, we're using BlueJeans. That's it. You know, what's that? <laughs> I've heard of that name. I can't remember what client had BlueJeans. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, one of my clients was asking, we use Adobe Connect. And I said, well, we use Zoom. And they're actually open to using Zoom. But I went on to Adobe Connect. And it looked very foreign to me after Zoom. It's like, yes. I know it has breakout rooms and I'm wondering, there's a huge learning curve around all this. That's right. And so you know, what you'll find a lot of times is instructional designers who want to be really creative will tend to like a tool like Adobe Connect. But the reality is for the majority of the world, they're used to using WebEx or Zoom. And sometimes it's easier to, to create training or environment that they have experience with. Does WebEx allow breakout rooms? I know WebEx training does. There's different versions, but I don't know about the regular WebEx, but I know, I know WebEx training does. Yeah, I find WebEx to be the most complex. It's the one that tends to, to have, I mean, most large organizations use WebEx, or a lot of them do. At least that's what we found is, in many cases, the tool that we're asked to use, and we're fine with it. It works fine for us. That's quite a balance, figuring out all those different systems. Thanks for the warning about that. <laughs> the, the other thing that we haven't touched on, we're talking about a lot of virtual learning, virtual instructor-led synchronous learning. And I don't know whether there's any value in this, but in today's world, there's also often a requirement for quick conversion into a purely self-paced environment. There are lots of different mechanisms for doing that. We've actually taken some courses from universities that were filmed. And we've converted them very quickly by adding to a video format, by adding motion graphics, whiteboard animations, high-resolution PowerPoints along with the audio to create really high-quality courses very inexpensively and very quickly. So that's just one mechanism. Another mechanism could be utilizing tools like Articulate Storyline or other authoring tools to create fully interactive WBT or e-learning. There's lots of options out there depending on what your goals are. I like the idea of creating lecture-based courseware quickly in a purely self-paced environment by creating this video just because it can be done really quickly and inexpensively and with a high-quality deliverable, which really wasn't an option years ago. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yeah, it's like stringing together short snippets like TED Talks and making it interactive and making it reflective, it sounds like. Right. So a lot of times, uh, for example, if you have a lecture, the screen that's being filmed is far away. It's hard to see. So but you can take the audio and then you can take PowerPoints and zoom it in and you can add whiteboard animations and motion graphics to bring complex topics to life. So you can really make it into something spectacular, much more effective than just doing a pure video of a person lecturing from 100 yards away. The other thing I was just going to say, and this is just the best practice, is whether you're delivering virtual training or whether you're recording yourself, you got to make sure that you are in a room that has great sound quality, that you have the right microphone and kind of sound system. And if you're going to videotape yourself, that you have the right background and lighting as well. But I think those are important things to be thinking about because it'll save you a lot of pain down the line. 
And so, Michael, the other thing that I would add is to pick up on what Colin said, everything, any little scrap of content can become the center of, a, of learning, even if it's small micro learning units. You may have a file cabinet somewhere around your office that has these videos that Colin is talking about or films from things you've done earlier or even PowerPoints and designs that you've done earlier. Everything is fair game in the new world because post-production, as Colin is talking about, enables you to magically make anything look like it was just developed tomorrow. So throw nothing away. No scraps. <laughs> Pull them all together. Uh-huh. Pull all kinds of pieces. Yeah, that's fascinating. We have a, another instructor that was teaching a whole series on project management. It was like, I think about 20 different videos that he had created. And he taped himself in his own studio using Adobe Connect. You know, it had his PowerPoint and had some whiteboard animations that he used the tool to create. They were kind of looked like hand-drawn whiteboards. And so we took that and we made those into professional whiteboard animations. We took his PowerPoints and made movement and added motion graphics to show charts moving around. And we kept his audio because the audio was great and he had a lot of animation in his voice. But we brought the rest of the world to life. I can't think of a, of a better way to create a real high quality deliverable in a very rapid manner, particularly in today's world where you may need to do it quickly. And what kind of formatting of that self-paced coursing, when you're recording that video or doing that whole approach, what do you notice helps people kind of feel deeper connection with the person or at a heart level, given the diversity topics, inclusion topics, leadership is all about head and heart. What makes the difference between some of those ways of taking that video and working with it? What makes people really resonate as participants when they're watching this by themselves and connecting with it? Any tips or any insights? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are some. I mean, some are trained and, and some are also innate, but the ability for a facilitator to have passion is really important, particularly when you're talking about hearts. So how they present and speak on topics not everybody is great at, not everybody's born to be a facilitator. But if you have that right person, that resonates on its own. And then adding visuals to bring the voice and the words to life, even adding music helps create an emotional part to the learning. So I think that those are some components that are really important. I still think that that's presentation and that bring people together, having discussions around topics that may have been learned during the video is also a real important element in order to get people's own context into the solution. How would you react in this situation? How would you react in this environment? That's more personal when they're talking about it. I would say that there's an element in terms of how you, how you create great presentation material for knowledge capture. And then there's another one, which is how do you make it stick with the individual learner? And that's through context. Colin, do any of the formats integrate video better than the others from your point of view? I can't speak to all of them. I do know like Adobe Connect allows you to load videos in advance so that when, when you're running video, as an example, it'll run from the individual's computer. I think it has the ability to put the, the sound on mute while the videos are running. So not everybody hears everybody else's video. 
but it's great because you don't have any kind of delay or lack of quality in the delivery of the video. Whereas if you present a video, like if I were to present a video on Zoom right now and you're watching it run from my computer, the sound and the quality of the video would look a little pixelated. So I don't know which tools do it. I know Adobe Connect does. I'm sure some of the other ones do as well. Yeah, something I did for a client, they had a conference on race and it was a thousand people in the room and then there was about 2,000 people live streaming it. And we were trying to say, can we create a head heart sort of engagement in this topic area? So I had like six guys who have been through our four-day white men's caucus, so white guys, and they formed a semicircle on stage around and had a conversation with each other. And we told the group, we're going to ignore you, pardon us, but you're witnessing us having this conversation with each other about what we learned. And then the second 25 minutes was people of color that were right behind them listening to this first 25 minutes switched places. And then they had a conversation about what was it like to hear the white men talk about their learnings about race. And then the third 25 minutes was a mixed race group talking about what questions do you have of each other? Well, how were you impacted by each of your fishbowls? I'm just thinking, I'm imagining if you took some real conversations like that, that you could film, whether it's around race or whether it's a gender conversation or another diversity topic, and then you could put that video into a learning center and then you could actually stop action and you could ask people to reflect on what are you noticing? What are you not noticing? What leadership skills are you seeing in this group? How are you impacted by each of these individuals? And really get people reflecting and thinking about how conversations across difference are actually successfully happening there. I'm just thinking out loud that if you take some real interaction, then you could help people dissect it online. Yeah, so I like that idea, Michael. And one of the other things that I have, challenges that I've seen, is a lot of times organizations or training will require use of case studies. And so sometimes to make it more relevant for training, the students will be asked to bring their own case studies into the training, and that way they can build context around it. But the challenge I've seen with that is they could be at varying levels of quality in the case studies. So what I like about what you're talking about right now is it gives you the ability to look at some real case studies that are the right amount of content and the right type of content to start additional conversations. So if you have that kind of a quality video that's created with a scenario discussions, then you know that it's the right level for people to discuss what their reactions are to it. Whereas if you're trying to create that environment every single time, you don't know what you're going to get. So I think there's some advantage in, in actually having a video where the quality of the scenario is the same every single time. I was going to say, so some of that, I, I love that idea a lot. I'm like, right, that's great. My biggest challenge with this is not being able to determine who's hiding, who's just tuned out, who's not listening, and they're getting their credit because it was on. So you have any best practices that could give us a hand with that? Well, I mentioned a, a couple. One is I definitely think breakout sessions is important. I also think that, like for example, there are some tools that are available in some of the virtual learning environments where you can have everybody, for example, communicate on screen at the same time. So you could, you could say, okay, <laughs> how is everybody feeling about this class today? Please provide one word. 
and they're all writing it. So you're forcing interactivity. You can also do that through polling. You can also do that through that randomization. There are different tools. There are some, some thoughts about best practices. So for example, if you're presenting, you're presenting sort of a framework that every three screens or no more than five screens of content that you're presenting, you're gonna have one where you're actually asking the learner to do something, provide some sort of feedback. So you're making sure that they're, that they're interacting throughout. And, and, and then finally, they shouldn't be four hour sessions. Right. Yeah. If it's a lot of content, 45 minute sessions over a two week period. Somebody said they made four hour sessions and then others have said two hour sessions. Sounds like from that, Colin, four hour sessions are pretty long. It can be done. You have to have pretty highly motivated students. But I mean, if you have more time and you can break into smaller chunks, this is a generation that are not used to concentrating for that long a period of time, including me. So I think breaking into smaller sessions, and everyone's talks about micro-learning, that's more effective. But ask people to concentrate, but let them know it's a finite period of time. And anybody can do it for a finite period of time. Yeah. The sessions I'm doing this Friday are 90 minutes. And it's a sweet spot because... When we've done some 60-minute sessions, it just goes so fast. It's actually hard to get more depth, people into more depth. But once it's beyond two hours, people will not sign up as much. Right, right. But also, as I said, you know, if you do 45 minutes of total instruction and then the rest is interspersed with uh, either interactivity or group sessions or people working on problems, it's not the same as just straight presentation. Have you found uh, polling and asking questions from a poll? Is that pretty effective as well? It's definitely effective. And if nothing else, it's just keeping the learners interacting. And any elements that you can add that make the course content a little bit more alive and fun, you know, makes sense to do. So the answer to that is definitely. Also, it really makes sense to have live chats. And if you can have more than one instructor or two instructors, as well as some people who are supporting watching questions as they're coming in and also helping with the facilitator answer some questions. That helps a lot because conversational learning is a lot better than pure presentation. Mark, do you have any other thoughts about, you talked a lot about creating psychological safety and that's such a tipping point, I think, in diversity conversations around certainly the magic that we create in the room. It's similar probably magic that we can or try to create in a virtual room of what, besides putting people in cohorts or they have regular connections with, what else builds that emotional safety or sense of vulnerability, you think, willingness to lean into the messy conversations that people have to be courageous about having? I think having the experience, seeing it as an experience and not a session. There are things that can happen before they even participate in the virtual session. You have the advantage of your own platform where some things could begin to happen around forums before they participate in the session and some connections that can be made. So I think you have the advantage of being able to get people knowing one another, connected and safe, before they even come to the session. Then once they're in your session, you can use affinity groups. You have that advantage so that people can be in groups where they share a dimension of identity 
and talk about what their concerns are for this process. How can we support each other as an affinity group during this process? So you have the neat opportunity to build an on-ramp to this in ways that other kinds of courses don't have. So you can begin to build from the beginning. Just in the DNI world, we're used to, like you said, affinity groups meeting and like groups, whether it's around race, gender, whatever differences, and then framing up some powerful questions and just letting that space open up amongst people. Right. And then you have a challenge that the topics are some of the most sensitive topics in the world that you're dealing with. So I think the safety of the structure itself would have to be important. If I'm coming to listen to a webinar on getting 10 tips to manage a new administrative assistant, my emotional vulnerability and risk is zero. But if I'm coming to talk about race, religion, and gender, my risk is very high. So am I being recorded? I'm going to want to know that. Who else is going to listen to this? I'm going to want to know that. I don't see these other faces yet. Is one of them in my reporting chain or could they go back and say something and repeat that I said? So the upfront rules and norms and the ability to enforce those around privacy and confidentiality are really important in uh, your field. And, and Michael, I, I agree with one other thing that you said, the what's in it for me at the beginning. So rather than just expecting that they're, they're going to take a course, what, why am I taking it and what's the value I'm going to get? If you can get that set up front, maybe it's through questions, that will make a lot of a difference in, in why people want to be involved. Yeah. So while it feels edgy and risky, what's the potential gain? Yeah. For you and for your team, for your company. It's interesting because people are often like, when I've witnessed it, people are amazed that they can have the kind of conversations in the room that they've had in our sessions around messy diversity topics. And I can imagine it's a similar learning curve online. It's like, wow, I didn't realize we could have this kind of conversation in a virtual space about this too. I think that's what you're going to find when the groups are small. I don't know how you do that with 200. Yeah, that's what we're experimenting with. Can we create a fishbowl of six people who actually volunteer to have a conversation with each other? And yes, they're witnessed by a lot of people, but that was my experience in the in-person session with a client. And I'm like, they did it. They went there. And so it's allowing, I think when it's a smaller circle and people just focus on that inner circle like they do in a fishbowl in real person, then they can go there. And it might actually be able to happen virtually too in a large group. We don't know. Some people will be more willing to go there than others probably, yeah. It's great to chat with both of you on the on this edge of virtual learning. And I'm, I'm guessing the COVID times is going to actually spurn a whole nother layer of innovation in this area since it's been a forced time. Any other closing thoughts from you, Colin or Mark, on this whole experimenting of virtual stuff? The only thing I was going to say is I think that what you're doing is really important. And I think some of the ways that you're experimenting, conducting virtual learning in, on these topics in this environment are going to be really kind of groundbreaking and interesting. And so I'm interested in seeing how it works and if there are any ways that we can help you. But I think that, that some of the things you're doing are, will be very successful. I think it'll be surprisingly successful and I think you're going to learn a lot along the way. 
my only comment is hurry up. <laughs> Get on it, huh? The world, need, the world needs yeah, that. Yeah, it's right. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, you do great work, and much of what you have is just really well designed to translate in this environment. It already is. Well, and the opportunity is all over the place out there did a session for the UN a few years ago and they keep asking about, can you do some webinars with men all over the world around growing them as gender equity advocates and stuff. So there's the need. Thank you, Colin. Colin Cohen is the chief revenue officer of PMG learning and Mark Williams is a consultant with WMFDP and also Win Insights. Both of you have been doing virtual learning forever. Thank you so much for both spending the time to share your insights. You're welcome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to this podcast on virtual learning and the tips from Colin and Mark about how to be more effective in creating both self-paced learning processes as well as where everybody's online together. Let us know what other successes you're having, what you're finding works in the DNI world around virtual learning. It's fun for all of us to share how do we create the maximum learning globally as we want more and more people around the world to uh, be creating more and more inclusive leadership. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.